may sound odd, but how many of you have ever done any work with music, like making, composing music? I guess the same analogy could apply to literary works as well. It feels like, in my experience, it's easier to do the builder, the initiator, than the concluder. Like, imagine you want to have a big epic orchestral piece. So you have the build up, and then you have the orchestral piece. And in, and again, I've known several people who tell me that the build up is a lot easier to do than the payoff. <laughs> so here we have the solenay. Now I'm going to be referring to the solenay as such several times because that's the name they were given in Star Trek Online. I'm going to be trying very hard to ignore what we know about these people in STO. Because STO takes these people and runs with them, like STO does with most things, actually. That's part of what I like about STO. But, <clears throat> that being stated, I just want to mention this because several episodes of TNG were deliberately designed with a sequel in mind. As in, the actual intent by the writers was to follow through on it in the future. Now, that's important because there's a difference between, you know, it feels like there should be a sequel and the writers actually deliberately wanted there to be a sequel. Now, this was a ladder. The writers did want to go forward with this. And then they saw the finished product. Um, I believe Brandon Braga himself commented that they looked like fish people in monk robes. And he was so disappointed by it, he decided he never wanted to use them again. Now, as it happens, this episode was have, starting to run into a little bit of budget issues. I mentioned how the budget thing is, was stretched, but remember... Several of the previous episodes were very expensive. Time Zero Part Two and Relics both were very pricey episodes. And uh, we've got some pricey episodes coming up, too. So they were like, we're going to have to pull back a bit on this one. They're like, okay. So when they actually got to the scene where they're in the, the pocket space where the Sol and I are experimenting on them, well, let's just say the budget problems show. They actually tried very hard to hide them, and they did a decent job, but it's probably telling that the scene on the holodeck is far more atmospheric and creepy, in a good way, than the actual scene in the actual bay with the actual Solonay. Anyways. Now, I do want to mention something. Every now and again, a writer makes a mistake, and in so making this mistake, they basically unintentionally introduce an interesting idea. In this case, the mistake is Riker's already having issues. He is already suffering from these problems because he's being abducted. Then he approves Geordi's plan to advance the sensors, and then Geordi builds the sensor things, and then they start abducting other people. Now, I bring this up because it's mentioned in the episode that the reason the Solonai got a hold of them was because of the sensor, but remember, they were already going after Riker. Now, we can smooth this over. In fact, in my opinion, it even makes more sense that way. Because the idea is the Solonai were just reaching out to another person. One of probably thousands of different species the Solonai were experimenting on on behalf of the um, people who they're working for in STO. I'm sorry, I said I wouldn't keep STO in mind. Sorry, sorry. Point being, for whatever their motives are and whoever they're working for, in a Dyson sphere, it is worth noting. Yeah, funny, by the way, that the Di that's that Dyson sphere. Anyways. <clears throat> Whatever, whatever their motives are, they probably just got a Riker and were content with just interacting with Riker until Jordy started his, his new sensors. And then they're like, huh, this might be worth looking into. Either because they're a threat now, 
or because they got their interest, or because they are demonstrating a level of technology that actually impresses the Solonae. In short, I like the idea that they were already interacting with the crew, or rather, with just Riker, and the crew made it much worse unintentionally. It kind of adds to the overall horror vibe of the episode. So this is a Braga script. I don't know if I mentioned that. Uh, he didn't come up with the original idea, but he is the one who did the second draft and the various drafts after that, and then, of course, the teleplay. And it kind of shows, because Braga's really good with ideas. And, in fact, if I could say there's one really good thing I like about this episode, it's the first 28 minutes, and I wrote that down. It's 28 minutes of solid build-up, and it's very gradual, and it's very slow, and, in my opinion, it's, it's gold. It is wonderful. Because it starts off really, really small. The only thing I would complain about is actually the cold open. The, tr the, the, uh, the, the, the initial part. I can't even think of the other term for that. The part at the beginning of the episode before you cut to the, you know, the, the title screen. I can't remember the other term for it, but it's a cold open. It's what it's called. Anyways. Because it shows Riker having trouble sleeping, and then it goes to the, we need to do this thing, and then it goes to the, the actual recital. In my opinion, what would have worked a little bit better is a brief scene, it's, it doesn't need to be long, of them talking about the new sensors. Riker is already kind of a little haggard, but doesn't explain anything. He's just a little haggard. Then we cut to the scene, and Riker falls asleep while Data reads poetry. Now, you might be thinking, well, why eject the earlier part? Because it makes it less clear that Riker is having issues unrelated to Data's poetry. It's basically a fairly simple bait-and-switch. Now, I mention this because this was Braga's intent. He actually wanted the viewer to think that Riker was falling asleep because of how boring the poetry was. Which is actually funny, because Ode to Spot is actually a surprisingly good poem. I mean, holy crap. Anyways. <clears throat> but instead, it's actually a plot point. You know, hence the bait-and-switch. But because we know immediately that Riker's already having issues, we know it's not related to that. It's just Riker's having issues, and that's probably what the plot point is. So we immediately skip over any tension or, or mystery or like, okay, whatever. It would have also added a little bit of a day-in-the-life thing. In short, there's nothing in the teaser, that's the term, there's nothing in the teaser to catch the viewer's attention. It just feels like it's another day. And that would actually work at this point. You couldn't do that earlier on, but in my opinion, you should do that kind of thing every now and again when it services the story. And in Season 6, I think we could have accomplished that here. That, however, leads to one of the problems, because there's this thing called teasers, which are unrelated to the teasers I just mentioned. Uh, little trailers, basically. Tra teaser, trazer, trailer teasers, there we go. Uh, because there's teaser trailers and then there's full trailers, right? And even back in the day, trailer teasers... I'm just going to call them teasers. Teasers for episodes were actually very common. Coming up next time on Star Trek The Next Generation, aliens are abducting their crew, and they're going to be experimented on by these new entities. How many of you remember that? And that's the problem. Because remember, that isn't, they don't even show the Solonay until like the 38, 39 minute mark. I, I didn't write it down. But it's way towards the end. And they don't even reveal the experimentation thing until after the 28-minute mark, when, when the, the, the holodeck scene has reached its conclusion. They spend the bulk of the episode unaware of the conclusion that was given away in the trailer. 
Anybody who's been watching my show in general, or simply is sufficiently versed in Star Trek when it was coming out, knows this is not the first nor last time an episode was basically ruined by these thoughtless trailers, either giving away spoilers or completely restructuring the episode so it seems exactly not what it is. I will never forgive the freaking, oh my god, the Voyager trailers were so bad in, in early, like, season one through three. Oh my god. <sighs> Anyways. So, yeah. The Solonite didn't come back. At least until STO. I should replay STO sometime with all of that spare time I have. So, like I said, Ode to Spot is surprisingly good. And there's actually some surprisingly good editing Oh yeah, first, really quick, Aunt Adele is mentioned yet again. I told you she'd be back. I love this little flavor background continuity stuff, but I really do. I eat it up. And, um, so, there, okay, this is going to sound like a weird place to start, but one of the things both video games and television and occasionally movies do wrong is they have a transition that's supposed to feel like a long period of time has passed. You know, the, I, I myself have memed, Three years later, right? Because of Dragon Age 2. A game which makes, which says three years have passed, and nothing indicates that. It feels like it's been three minutes. You know, maybe three days at absolute most, right? Which is funny because they pulled that one earlier too. So, it's a problem. Because there's certain visual and audio cues as well as style of presentation that can help indicate passage of time. There's a lot of little tricks you can use. Uh, you can use sped up footage, you can show something happening that the viewer knows takes a long period of time, like someone being born or whatever. Um, obviously narration is one of the tricks to do that. You can show people having literally aged or looking different or having different hairstyle or whatever. There's all sorts of things you can do to visually be like, time has passed. I'll actually give you a good example of that. Time Zero Part 2, when we cut to the crew in the past, it is obvious, based on how we see them, that time has passed. That a substantial chunk from them going into the past and from us seeing them has happened. And all they had to do was showcase them fitting neatly into their roles, having problems with the landlady, which is, okay, sure, I'll give you that. Time Zero Part 2, blah, blah, blah. They, they did a lot of things to indicate time has passed. Now, why am I going on about this? Because the overwhelming majority of time, when a show or, or movie or book or game or whatever doesn't properly show the passage of time, it's a bad thing. But here, here they do it beautifully. They deliberately have Riker lay down, and then immediately, and with no actual transition, Jordy's walking down the hall and taps on the door. And then Riker gets up from the same position he was just in, which is important. He's like, what? And Jordy's like, it's 700. Riker's like, I just laid down. And now we, the audience, understand how he feels because for us, both literally and figuratively, it feels like he just laid down and then there's the thing. It's a great way to get across that idea. And I really wanted to praise that moment because there's a lot of little tricks like that that the director pulled. I can't remember his name. Please forgive me. Um, I'll, I'll pull it up. I'll pull it up. Hang on. Who are you, director? Give me your name. Uh, this is directed by uh, Weiner. Weimer. Oh my god, I don't actually know this guy's name. Robert Weimer. He actually doesn't do a whole lot of stuff, but I have talked about him before. Because he did Data's Day, and he did Who Watches the Watchers, and he will be doing uh, Parallels in the future as well. Um, he's he, he pulls some very neat tricks in this, and he does... I think the best thing I could say about him is he knows how to deal with the limitations of his craft, and to try and use them to his advantage. So... 
So then we see Mott. A funny story. So I wrote down in my notes that this is the end of Mott, because this is the last time we'll see Mott the Barber on the Enterprise. And what's funny is, as I'm jotting that note down, Worf grabs the scissors and is like, oh, I'm going to destroy you. And I'm like, wait, no, I didn't mean it, literally. But we see Worf reacting to this. This is actually the second point here. And so we see Worf's reaction, we see the visor infection, Data losing an hour, um, and of course there's the panel and his reactions to the panel. Now these all happen over a decent course of time, and the whole time there's this side mystery of this, this rift, which, uh, which I don't like the way they took it, to be as blunt about that as I can, but I'll, I'll circle back around to that. But the point is, there's all these little hints and details as they slowly build up to this. And notice how, for once, Riker feels something's off and immediately goes to Troy. This just helps to solidify the lamentation status that I gave to Man of the People, by the way. I, I know I've talked about it many times, but here in Season 6, the connection and personalities of Troy and White Riker and the way they gel and the connection between the two is a huge part of both's character at this point. They're both a part of each other's character. And the fact that Riker goes straight to her makes so much sense for so many reasons. And, of course, he, he tries to re, you know, reason this out to her. And she, of course, admits, well, there's others. Why don't we do a group session? And this... <laughs> this is... I'm going to be honest, this is actually one of my favorite Trek scenes in TNG. No joke. I, I, probably top 15-ish. You know, not like, not like top 5, but this whole scene, the holodeck scene, is, in my opinion, amazing. You remember uh, Identity Crisis, and I mentioned how awesome it was to use the holodeck as a literal deductive tool. As, as literally using the holodeck as something other than a fantasy machine, a set generator, or a, you know, oh my gosh, the holodeck has malfunctioned threat of the week problem. But using it in an intellectual and correct process, it was just awesome to see it used that way. It's the same thing here. But there it was being done to try and deduce the mystery, which technically is what it's being done for here, but not really. The characters are using it to deduce, the, to deduce the mystery, but the writer and the director are using it to amp up the atmosphere and the tension. Because pay attention to how the screen starts, scene starts. It's just the holodeck grid. There's nothing threatening about it all. It looks plain and boring. And, and there's no music playing either. They call in the table, and it's just a simple wooden table. Okay. And then bit by bit, each of them adds a little bit to the narrative. Changing And by the way, very good special effects. If you notice, Jordy actually moves it several times while a transition is happening for the table. Nice little effects work there. Anyway, so table changes and shifts, and then it turns to metal, and then they add the lighting, and it gets darker, and then there's the bright light, which changes the, the dynamic of how everyone looks, and then they add the hook arm and the scissor thing, which was a bothering wharf, and then they add the clacking, and the whole thing is just this nice big ramping up of, oh my god. And it even ends perfectly. I think I've been in this room. I think we've all been in this room. That's great. And I'm sorry for gushing, but I absolutely adore everything about that scene, from the visuals to the effects, to the presentation and action of the characters, to the dialogue they say, to the usage of the lighting, to the usage of sound. There's even They even start off with whispers, and you think, oh, that's creepy. No, 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 no. The clacking is so much worse. <laughs> then the episode falls off tremendously. You'd think, 
quick aside, there's this bit where they're like, is anyone missing from the crew? Yeah, two people. You'd think there'd be an alarm for that. You'd think there'd be something somewhere that would say, hey, this crew member who was supposed to be on the crew is suddenly missing. Right? Like, doesn't that sound like a normal, everyday thing that should be part of the ship? I know that this is kind of future stuff, but on Voyager, they make a point of regularly scanning people's brains. And yet they won't even tell you if people are gone. You, the computer can tell they're gone, because he just asked. Are they gone? Yes. Oh, sorry. Sorry. And then they kind of technobabble their way to a solution. Now, I don't want to say technobabble. That's not quite correct. But they do tech their way to a solution. They... All they do is just kind of, okay, we must figure out the subspace dimensional field, and then we must d d come up with an aperture science re-deregulator to, to, you know, tech, 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 tech. And it just doesn't work nearly as well. This is why I brought up that build-up problem. But I've been putting some thought into it, and I think I figured out the main reason why the finale of the episode just doesn't click, no pun intended, at all for me. It's because it suddenly becomes impersonal. The whole build-up is all a very personal story. It's about Riker, Geordi, Worf, and Ensign What's-Her-Face. Sorry, I don't remember her name. But it's all about those individuals. And we see each of them individually first, and then they, we kind of see more and more as it's starting to bother them, and then we see how they react when they are together. But all of that is still a very private and personal story. But then the, the finale comes, and all of a sudden, it's not about Riker. Riker doesn't matter anymore. Worf doesn't matter anymore. These abductions and these experiments are no longer relevant. And they aren't even the focus of the story. Instead, the story focuses entirely on this rift, which is going to buckle the hull and destroy the ship. It's probably sad that something that should be a larger issue is ultimately completely deinvesting for me. But again, it's because of the nature of the story. It goes from a horror story to a threat of the weak. And if you pay attention, and I was, almost all of the, the, the teching towards the end is all about shutting down the rift and you know, beaming the affected things into space and, oh my god, the hull's going to collapse and we have this such and such time and we've got a ticking clock we've got to beat. It's not about the individuals coping with this or trying to fight back against this. Now, I never like to criticize without critiquing, but I can tell you exactly what I do in a nutshell. First of all, eject the ship threat, just entirely. Get rid of it. It has no reason to exist. There is already a threat to the ship, the people on it. And we showed that when one person was sent back and dies from their experiments. So there you go. There's your threat. Now have them basically come to the same general conclusion. We need to send someone over, and we need that person to be cognizant so they can deal with it. So one person goes over. It's Riker. Sure, this is already a Riker vehicle. He gets over there. He looks up. Oh, my God. Everything's dark and horrible, and there's this clacking. Now, there's a lot I'd love to do with that scene, but acknowledging the limitations of budget and other similar issues, what I would probably do is a lot more limited in scope. First, add a little bit to the creep factor. All we really see is the Solonae themselves and their equipment and two people being operated on. Why not have a pile of bodies? Just barely visible. Maybe not even full bodies. How about body parts? They already mentioned that they detached Riker's arm and then reattached it. Have a couple of arms over there of different skin colors. Showing that, and that's important. I don't mean like, you know, you know dark skin, white skin. No, I don't, in other words, non-human. 
like show a hand, like one of those webbed hands over there, and then maybe like a Vulcan hand or or something, you know, to try and get across the idea that they've been doing this to a lot of different species over a while, and have Riker look at him and be like, oh my god, you know, what do I do? And then have Riker have to get his way out of there, get her, and figure out some way to escape. If you still want the ticking clock. Have him figure out how to shut down their little subspace bubble thing so it starts collapsing on them. So it would be dangerous to basically both the Solonae and the people. So the Solonae are being consumed as they're trying to escape, and Riker and What's-Her-Face you know, rush out at the last minute or whatever. I probably wouldn't want to go in that direction, but again, putting myself in 92, limiting myself to the time and the the Burmans of the time and, and all of the problems of the time, budget and, and, and time, I'm going to say time five more times. Time, 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 time. It would help, or I'm saying it would help. It would not help. It would actually make things much harder. But if I was to put myself in those shoes, that's probably the kind of direction I would go with. I'm curious what you would do. And I'm curious what you think of the finale in general. Oh, and of course, you know, they'll be back. No, no, they won't. At least not until STO. You should go play STO. It's a good game. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. And uh, I'll, I'll take my paycheck cryptic if you want to get, no, I'm, I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I'll see you next time, guys.